Good afternoon, and welcome to the session on migrating your data warehouses to uh, Amazon Redshift. Uh, fourth day, so I'm sure you have a lot crammed in here, uh, so we hope to make it a little bit easy on you. Uh, my name is uh, Pawan Potakuchi. I lead the product team for Amazon Redshift, and I'm happy to have with me today Ali Khan from Scholastic and uh, Lakshmi Maladi from uh, North Bay Solutions um, joining me in the session. So uh, before I proceed, a quick show of hands. How many of you already use Redshift here today? Okay, about a third. Um, so that's uh, helpful. Um, so I'm going to start with a brief introduction to Amazon Redshift, um, and then <clears throat> discuss a few use cases of customers that have migrated to Redshift, um, the benefits that they've gotten, and um, go over a few options um, to, uh, on tooling uh, that can help you migrate uh, to Redshift. After that, uh, Lakshmi and um, Ali are going to dig deeper into Scholastic's use case, share their data platform architecture, uh, some of the steps that they've followed um, to uh, migrate to Redshift, and some of the learnings that they've had uh, through the process of migration. So uh, what is Amazon Redshift? So Redshift um, makes data warehousing faster, simpler, and a whole lot cheaper than before. Um, it's a relational data warehouse. It's based on a massively parallel processing architecture with columnar storage. Um, so it distributes and parallelizes all of the data warehousing operations that you care about, uh, loading data, um, executing queries, backups, restoring from backups, um, it's uh, also very easy to get started. You can create a single node cluster with 160 gigabytes of data in under a couple of minutes, and then uh, scale it to gigabytes, uh, sorry, terabytes or even petabytes with a few clicks on the AWS Management Console. It's a managed service. Uh, so what that means is um, a lot of aspects related to uh, the heavy lifting of uh, operating data warehousing infrastructure uh, can be offloaded to the service. Uh, so this includes... Um, data replication across nodes, um, backups, uh, automated and continuous backups, patching, um, disaster recovery, fault tolerance, um, and um, uh, aspects like that. Uh, it's pretty cheap. You can get started with under, uh, with uh, at uh, 25 cents per hour, and all of this um, is available at a starting price of $1,000 per terabyte per year. Uh, which is um, at least an order of magnitude cheaper than um, other data warehousing solutions in the market. So how has Redshift done so far? So here is an analyst view. So this was, uh, <clears throat> the service launched about uh, three plus years ago, um, and uh, Forrester rated it as one of the leaders in the data warehousing landscape. Um, so the team delivered over 140 features, meaningful features since the service got launched, uh, which is roughly about three features a month. Um, and uh, have seen um, um, quite a lot of customer momentum, and uh, Redshift is, in fact, one of the fastest-growing AWS services uh, in the history of AWS, um, right after Aurora. So here is a quick selection of uh, Redshift customers. Uh, so we have uh, customers across industry segments um, and uh, sizes here, um, so customers such as Yelp that are loading uh, tens of millions of ad impression data and over 250 million um, mobile event data 
uh, events uh, data a day, um, they analyze ad campaign performance, how um, their users are um, using um, prospective mobile features. Um, NASDAQ is another example, and you have heard uh, from FINRA uh, yesterday at the keynote. Um, so NASDAQ's use case is somewhat similar in that, of course, they operate across 100 exchanges um, you know, in many countries in the world. Um, they load over 8 billion rows of um, codes, orders, and trade information uh, into Redshift every day um, and uh, analyze uh, client activity um, and fraudulent patterns. So uh, NASDAQ is an example of a customer that migrated from a different data warehousing solution to Redshift, and so did uh, many more customers on this slide. Um, so why are customers migrating to Redshift? So there are, at a high level, three broad uh, use cases. So the first use case is a lot of customers start with using their transactional systems to analyze data, and they work pretty well. You can create a replica and analyze data and reports on it. But as the data set size grows um, you know, into terabytes range, uh, performance starts degrading pretty rapidly. And um, so uh, these are the kind of use cases where um, customers found Redshift to perform over two orders of magnitude better. Uh, one of the other aspects of operating a transactional environment is that you're likely dealing with a single node or probably a couple of nodes if you're using Rack. Um, and uh, so you're constrained by storage, you're constrained by the amount of uh, memory and CPU, and you have to vertically scale, so it gets pretty messy. Another class of customers that are migrating um, are the ones that are already using other MPP databases. Um, and um, the reason that they find Redshift appealing is that it's an order of magnitude cheaper. Um, it's also, like we discussed, a managed service, um, so it enables uh, them to offload the operational um, overhead of managing database, uh, databases to uh, Redshift, and they're able to deploy their developers, their administrators to more productive uh, business intelligence application development. So the last one is um, a set of users that are migrating from using SQL on Hadoop uh, into Redshift. And um, so the benefit there for them is it's uh, an order of magnitude faster. Um, and the end users don't have to learn programming. The SQL syntax is pretty familiar to what they're used to. Um, Redshift offers standard JDBC, ODBC interfaces. So the ETL tools, the data integration tools, and um, the reporting tools that they use can be seamlessly used with uh, Redshift. Uh, so if, uh, quickly, uh, some use cases here. Uh, Boingo Wireless, you may be familiar, they operate over a million hotspots and Wi-Fi locations across uh, lots of countries. Uh, they've used uh, an Oracle uh, database, which they were using for transactions uh, for analytics, and uh, they found several limitations as the data set, uh, size grew, uh, performance issues, um, the limitation around vertical scaling, um, administrative overhead, and uh, um, expensive licensing cost. So they considered a bunch of options and found Redshift to be a fraction um, of cost, um, and uh, compared to their existing solution, it performed over two orders of magnitude faster. So loads were um, used to be um, a couple of hours before for loading a million records for them, and that reduced to 15 seconds, uh, which is significantly faster. Uh, querying data used to take uh, 45 minutes, and that reduced to 15 seconds as well. Um, and so why is this the case? So we talked a little bit about um, the MPP architecture, ability to parallelize, distribute queries, data loads. Um, so that is certainly part of the reason. Um, other reason is that um, Redshift uh, offers columnar storage, automatic data compression, 
Um, it uh, comes with uh, large data block sizes, a megabyte, and then local storage. So all of these lead to significantly less um, performance, uh, significantly less I/O uh, required to perform queries uh, compared to uh, row-based stores. And uh, the last reason is that um, Redshift runs on I/O optimized hardware. Um, so you can get up to four gigabytes per second per node of scan rates um, with Redshift. And with enhanced red networking, we are able to process over a million packets per second per node. So all of that leads to uh, better performance. Um, another example of a customer that migrated from an MPP database is uh, Docomo. Uh, so for those of you that are not familiar, they are the largest mobile carrier in Japan. They have 68 million subscribers. They generate tens of terabytes of data across uh, per day across all of their mobile network. Um, and their use case is largely around uh, analyzing this data to optimize their logistics, to optimize their marketing operations. Um, and so they're using uh, a Greenplum database on-premises. Um, it was, you know, as you can imagine, fairly large footprint, um, and uh, it was quickly getting pretty complex for them to manage it, both from a cost perspective as well as a management perspective. Um, so they migrated to Redshift and found it to be not only cheaper, but an order of magnitude faster uh, for their analytics queries compared to uh, their Greenplum environment on-premises. Um, they also were able to free up a lot of time for their um, developers and uh, reduce their uh, BI app application development time by 50%. Um, so another example is Yahoo. Um, so they have migrated um, some of their workloads from using Hadoop on uh, SQL on Hadoop to uh, Redshift. Um, so Yahoo, as you know, operates lots of properties across mobile and uh, web, um, and so they generate a lot of data across these properties. Um, so for one workload, uh, on an average day, they have 2 billion events uh, spread across 25 million devices. And uh, so they were using Hive. And as you may be familiar, um, Yahoo is sort of the source for the Hadoop movement, right? So they have created uh, a lot of tech initial technology for Hadoop. Uh, so it's interesting that they found Hive to be, um, you know, uh, difficult to use. Um, they migrated to Redshift and found significant improvement in performance, uh, similar to some of the other use cases. They were able to serve real-time insights, uh, near real-time insights to their end users, um, and of course, um, the operational uh, footprint is significantly lesser. Uh, so here's a quick um, analysis that they did with uh, SQL on Hadoop technology and Redshift, um, and the y-axis here is in exponential scale, so the gaps here are uh, pretty meaningful. So how do you quantify the business value and productivity uh, that we talked about uh, before? Um, so for those of you that might need to convince your um, you know, business or management, um, so IDC did a study recently with uh, uh, multiple uh, Redshift customers that have migrated tens of terabytes and hundreds of terabytes of data into uh, Redshift, um, and they found that the investment that these customers made uh, broke even in uh, five months, uh, which is... Uh, um, pretty compelling. Uh, so the kind of productivity benefits that they were getting uh, were fourfold. They were able to analyze a lot more data than ever before. They were able to uh, deploy applications like we discussed uh, with some of the customer use cases uh, much faster, um, so uh, faster time to market. They were able to get much better insights um, from their data because the queries perform uh, much more quickly. And uh, of course, with cloud, you're able to map, uh, map your 
demand of applications with the capacity, so that helps with uh, managing costs better as well. Um, so how would you migrate uh, to Redshift or any database for that matter? Um, so there are multiple steps, right? So you have to map your data types from your source database into the target database. Um, so in the case of Redshift, um, you also have to think about compression, um, how, given it's a distributed database, how do you choose the distribution keys um, and sort keys? Um, and uh, you need to generate the associated DDL, apply it on uh, the Redshift site. Um, you'll also then need to look at your ETL scripts, your reports, scripts that might be using ad hoc SQL um, and convert that. Um, you'll also need to assess the gaps because each of these engines come with different functions uh, and capabilities. So uh, what are the differences and how do you um, address these gaps? And uh, lastly, you have to migrate the data. And that involves loading, bulk uploading uh, you know, the initial set of data. You might also need to capture updates on your source system while you migrate or po possibly even after, uh, after the migration if you're using transactional systems. Um, so change data capture and applying that um, on Redshift uh, will be necessary. You might also need to do some transformations if you're going from a transaction system to a fact dimension based model. Um, so that is important as well. Uh, so this might sound uh, you know, pretty complex. However, we have uh, tools within um, AWS as well as our partner ecosystem and services that can help ease the process of migration. Uh, so I'm going to quickly touch upon a few tools, and uh, they, there are some sessions which kind of go into more details uh, with respect to these uh, technologies. Uh, so AWS Schema Conversion Tool can help you uh, convert from uh, a schema in your source database to Redshift with a few clicks. Uh, we supported, um, um, we had support for Oracle and Teradata. We recently added support for Netiza and Greenplum. Um, so what this tool does is it um, generates a schema. It also looks at your source data um, and source database and the workload associated with it, cardinality, uh, statistics, and figures out what are the optimal so uh, sort keys, distribution keys um, that uh, you need to apply on the Redshift side. Um, it can help you convert SQL code as part, you know, that's part of your scripts. Um, lastly, it also generates a detailed assessment report that can help you uh, look at things the tool was not able to convert, which is pretty important, and then so that you can figure out a way to do it yourself or through a partner. Um, so a quick um, um, you know, UI of the conversion tool. On the left-hand side, you can see uh, the set of database objects corresponding to your source, data, uh, source database. And on the right-hand side, there are database objects for Redshift. Um, so you can pick and choose the objects from your left-hand left uh, side and then either convert them one by one or you can do it across the board uh, at once. In the center pane uh, on the top, um, there are a set of issues that point out the gaps and uh, why the conversion, the tool was not able to convert uh, specific objects. And uh, below, for the objects that have been converted, you can see um, DDL code on the left-hand side for the source database and DDL code for the uh, target database. So um, this covers um, the first three um, steps for conversion that I discussed earlier. Um, you also need to convert your data. So the data migration uh, service uh, is another tool that can help you do that. Um, there are several sources, including uh, many transactional databases, including Oracle and SQL Server. Um, you can do both bulk upload as well as capture incremental updates and continuously replicate um, to Redshift using this uh, service. Uh, it's pretty cost effective um, at uh, $3 per terabyte of uh, data that, migrate, uh, that gets migrated. Um, and um, 
It's also fault tolerant. So um, there is a replication instance that you'll ne need to use to buffer the updates coming from the source uh, system. And then um, you can apply that on the target system, and the tool takes care of that. You can also make the replication system, uh, replication instance HA, um, so that you know if you're doing continuous replication, um, it's more uh, resilient. Um, apart from the AWS tools, um, there are several uh, data integration partners that help with uh, data migration as well. So you have Informatica, Talon, Metillion. Um, that can help with the process. Um, so you have system integrators um, that have cap capabilities um, and skills to uh, migrate uh, to AWS, as well as Redshift. Uh, NorthPay uh, Solutions is one of them. Uh, so beyond Redshift, AWS also offers you um, a broad and uh, deep ecosystem of big data services. Um, so a couple of them got announced today. Um, Glue, a bunch of them got announced yesterday um, in the AI space. Um, so one of the things to consider here is that for AWS, S3 tends to be the center of gravity for all of our um, data. And uh, so you ingest your data into S3, and lots of uh, um, processing and execution engines and analytics engines can read the data sitting in S3 and help you make sense out of it. Um, one of the design patterns uh, that we are increasingly seeing is um, the usage of EMR and Spark to process, uh, um, the, uh, to perform ETL jobs, and then load the resulting data. So Spark has a Redshift connector uh, that can load that data uh, into Redshift, and you can use that for faster uh, processing of SQL queries. Uh, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Ali. Uh, so he leads the data and uh, analytics group at uh, Scholastic. Thank you, Pavan, and good afternoon to you all. Uh, my name is Ali Khan. I'm responsible for data platform, business intelligence, and analytics at Scholastic, and I'm going to tell you the story of how we uh, moved our data platform to AWS. But before I do that, can I just get by a show of hands, um, how many of you heard of Scholastic or are a customer or know what we do? Okay, most of you. So, so that's great and, and not surprising, right? Um, if you have children who go to school in, here in this country, or you went to school in this country yourself, or you're a fan of you know, The Hunger Games or um, Harry Potter, which are some of our more, more popular titles, then you're probably aware uh, of Scholastic and, and what we do. Uh, we're a bookseller, basically. So what I want to talk about is some of the things that people commonly are not aware of. And the first thing that tends to surprise people is that this company was founded in 1920. So this is a 96-year-old company. And if you think about all the changes that have happened in the world uh, you know, since then, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty remarkable. This company started from uh, a single magazine that was hand-delivered uh, to a school to now being the world's largest uh, publisher and distributor of children's um, literature. Um, the second thing that tends to surprise people is that we're known for being a bookseller, but we're also uh, a premier provider of educational tools. So we support um, school teachers in over 90% of the schools in the U.S. to really help them in the classroom and really help drive um, you know, them to improve their interaction with the kids. So um, from a data perspective, this puts us in a unique position. Um, no one knows more about the reading habits of children and the experience of school teachers in early childhood um, literacy than Scholastic, not the government, not the schools themselves. So that's an amazing data set to have. And our challenge in data analytics is really to help um, you know, leverage that for the business so that we can help drive the core mission of improving childhood literacy. So, uh, where were we? So, this 100-year-old company has been using computers for about 25 years, um, and about 13 years ago, we 
uh, we stood up our first enterprise data warehouse. And this is in the IBM S400 platform, which looking around probably predates many of you. Um, this made uh, quite a lot of sense at the time because a lot of our source systems um, were and actually still are based on the IBM S400 DB2 platform. Um, however, it was discovered that it was quite challenging to get meaningful reporting data out of that platform. And so about 10 years ago, it was decided to build SQL Server as a layer on top of that initial data warehouse. So, um, you know, this made a lot of sense as well at the time because there was a, a, a the capacity to leverage SQL Server analysis services, right, which is their OLAP cubes, uh, SSRS, SQL Server reporting services, which is a reporting solution, as well as uh, end-user BI tools that were popular at the time. So, you know, over the last 13 or 14 years, the enterprise data warehouse at Scholastic has become the sole uh, repository, really, for operational reporting, for analytics. It's become key to the operations across every line of business. So we have 500 direct users, and by that I mean people who actually log into the Enterprise Data Warehouse for their, their key metrics, and then we have probably twice that number of indirect users. And by that I mean people who have consumed data from the Enterprise Data Warehouse into spreadsheets or other constructs and, and use that independently. So um, our problem isn't really scale or size of the data, right? So we started with a 20 terabyte uh, data, which is small by today's um, you know, standards. Our problem was in the complexity of taking data from many dozens of AS400 systems, SQL server, server systems, and others, and really applying complex data logic and putting that into a form that was useful for the business. So every night, we have thousands over 5,000 jobs that run on the uh, IBM platform. We have hundreds of jobs that run on the SQL Server platform. And after a while, this began to, to take a toll. Um, for those of you who are familiar with data warehouse architecture, this is a very Kimball-esque type of, um, uh, of design. And so uh, that was fine for the time. But over time, uh, you know, some, some um, shortcomings have become apparent. One of them is the design methodology uh, really dictated that the, the data was is instantiated uh, in multiple tiers, ostensibly for good reasons, the same data in different, uh, you know, for different reasons, right? So we had the staging data, we had the core enterprise data warehouse itself, we had data marks on top of that and cubes that are not on top of that. So all of these things were done for, for good reasons, right? There were uh, concerns around performance or integrity, but this led to lots of issues. Um, first and foremost, really the complexity environment inhibited us uh, in terms of our time to market, right? So every time you need to make a change, you now need to make that change at several layers of the design, right? And test that as well. Um, the complexity of the, the ETL processes um, led us to not be able to meet our SLAs with, uh, uh, you know, with any real um, um, confidence. Uh, we also had reached some scale limitations with our cubes. Uh, the cubes were a great idea, right? So a cube is a pre-aggregated, multidimensional view of your data that once it's built, you can slice and dice to your heart's content and get instantaneous results. But that's the key point, once it's built, right? So our, our cubes would take 10, 12 hours to build. And all of these factors, all of these limitations uh, led us down the path of not being able to provide effective self-service. So that's important, you know, for if you run a data organization, you don't want to be a, a group of report writers, right? You want to emphasize to your users that um, you own the data, we're engineers, we're going to help you. But if you're not able to build a platform that does that, then you're going to end up writing reports for them. And that is not the correct model, nor is it a scalable one. So um, we're quite fortunate at Scholastic in that um, our management um, sort of decided to do a transform transformation of technology across the board. And data is one of those pillars. So we had the opportunity to kind of reimagine how we would build our platform, and we in fact did. 
So uh, we thought about what are the key uh, facts that what are the key factors that really go into deciding what the new platform should look like. So at the top of our mind was uh, the non-functional non requirements, right? We had a platform that was not performant, not scalable, or particularly available, and so we really wanted uh, a, a design that would help um, overcome those challenges for the reasons that I mentioned around not being able to provide self-service. But we also wanted to leverage the, the very strong skill set that we had in data warehouse disciplines. So uh, we have a team that understands a lot about what it takes to take data from these antiquated systems, apply business logic, uh, and do that with a high level of data quality. So we really wanted to shorten that uh, learning curve and leverage the skill of the team. And these are, this is a team that knows relational databases really well. They think in SQL and so on. We also needed to integrate with existing technology. So whereas our area was undergoing a transformation, there are other parts of the enterprise that are already well established, and we wanted to make sure that we could integrate well with those. At the same time, um, Scholastic had uh, embarked on um, you know, a, a, a sort of a new paradigm for itself that was cloud first. So uh, last year at this event, my colleague Jeff Gelb, who is here, um, he is the head of cloud and foundational engineering at Scholastic, talked about the fact that we were um, embracing this DevOps model and talked about um, you know, that we had a number of initiatives that were really going to go cloud first, and data is one of them. So what I'm talking about today is really the progress that we've made in that 12 months since Jeff was here. Um, another one, really important for us, is the ability to support big data type um, initiatives. So this is key, right? Our industry, um, like many others, is undergoing profound change because of the digital revolution, right? So uh, we sell books. So when we sell books to a, uh, a physical bookstore, what do we really know about that transaction from a data point of view? Well, we know that we know which book it is and when it was sold and how much it was sold for, and that's about it. But now that we have, um, you know, e-readers, right? That gives us a tremendous amount of insight into uh, the behavior of, of that child that we didn't have before. So what is this child reading? How fast are they reading? Are they skipping parts? Are they highlighting words that they don't understand? So this, this data is just something that we really want to leverage to be able to improve the customer interaction and also uh, optimize the product. And finally, we also wanted to make sure that we teamed up with a partner um, that really had sort of done this before and that could, could guide us and had been through this journey because a lot of this was new for us. So, uh, you know, why did we choose AWS and, and Amazon Redshift? Well, um, Pavan recounted, you know, some of the advantages and so on, so I'm not going to go through all those. But I just want to um, point out the things that really, really kind of struck us. Um, the first was obviously our concern around meeting uh, non-functional requirements. This is a platform that was scalable and fast, um, you know, off the bat. Also, from a cost point of view, um, we would have a level of insight and control into managing the cost that we never really had with our previous platforms, and that was very attractive. And finally... Um, you know, this was quite familiar, right? Um, so my own background is heavily in Teradata. So when I, when I looked at Redshift, I said, oh, this is an MPP database, but it's column-oriented and it's in the cloud. So, you know, here's something that we can understand. My team, um, who are all, you know, uh, trained in relational databases and classical data warehouse theory, quickly understood what this is, right? And that significantly shortened our uh, learning curve. So um, also then we partnered with North Bay, um, uh, an Amazon partner who had a lot of experience in migrating um, to the AWS platform. Okay, so once we decided uh, the technical direction, how did we actually go about doing this? So we decided that we would take 12 weeks and we would uh, take a real problem in the business in the current data environment, right? So we picked a line of business that's having a lot of issues um, producing the, the key metrics that were required by the executives in a, in a timely fashion. Um, we decided to, to take that, that slice uh, and move it to the new platform. Um, so we had to do a few key things. And one of the key things that we wanted to do was 
um, demonstrate immediate business value, right? Um, not just that we could migrate the data, but that this could lead to sort of additional insight that wasn't available um, before. We also made a key decision that um, we were going to we were not going to buy an ETL tool, right? We were not going to buy a CDC tool. We really wanted to see how far we could get with the native AWS data stack and open source. And, you know, today that Werner, uh, when he announced, um, you know, uh, Glue, I, I felt very vindicated in that, in that decision. <laughs> um, so the outcome of this 12 weeks was we developed the core framework um, for uh, migrating data. And this, for us, was the central problem. How do you get data out of an AS400 system, which doesn't really talk to anything, into, um, into Redshift? That, for us, was the core problem. And we built a framework that allows to do that um, in, in a performant and repeatable fashion. And um, Lakshmi is going to talk about that a little bit more in a bit. Um, we also validated that we could move from uh, an ETL-based uh, uh, environment into an ELT-based environment, and that that would work well. And finally, we wanted to show that once we had this data available you know, uh, quickly, we could also visualize it and that drive additional insight to the business. And so we used Tableau for that purpose. So uh, a very quick high-level view of the architecture. So in designing the new architecture, we had, we had this imperative that we set for ourselves that we are not going to persist the data in multiple layers over and over again, pre-aggregated unnecessarily. We're going to keep the data in a relatively raw format. And we, so we did that in S3. Um, and we would project that data um, you know, through uh, into the, the form that we needed it using tools like Tableau. So we did aggregate the data when we needed to, if there was an actual need. We still, you know, built facts and dimensions as we needed. This is still a data warehouse. But we did not want to, uh, we wanted to eliminate the need to build a data mart or the equivalent of a data mart, right? We wanted to eliminate the need to have a cube or the, or the equivalent of the cube. So I want to point out a couple of, of key features of this, and then uh, I'm going to hand over to Lakshmi, who's going to talk about the, um, the ingestion framework in a little bit more detail. So the first sort of key, the second key decision we made was that, starting on the left here, if you look at our source data, we decided to bifurcate that feed out of the AS400 staging systems. So the AS400 systems would continue to feed the existing SQL Server reporting environment, but we'd also um, branched off a feed into the new environment. Over there, you can also see Control-M. So Control-M is our enterprise job scheduling um, uh, software. And we want to make sure that we integrated with that right off the bat. We're going into production. We want to make sure that um, all the production folks are aware of all the jobs that are running and so that we would have the right level of support. And, um, you know, the final sort of thing that I want to point out at this point is uh, we leveraged EMR and Scoop as uh, the heart of our data ingestion framework. So Scoop, if you're not familiar with it, is an open source data movement utility. Using it against EMR allowed us to uh, parallelize this. So we were able to pull data in parallel from the source system and ingest that into the, uh, our environment, which we named the Scholastic Data Cloud. So I'm going to um, pause this story. I'm going to hand over to Lakshmi. Lakshmi um, worked with us as um, the uh, principal architect and engineer. He built a lot of these components that he's going to talk about now. And then I'm going to continue and tell uh, you where we are uh, in our journey uh, at the moment. So thank you, and I'll be back. Good morning, everyone. This is Lakshmi from North Bay Solutions. Um, so, so while Ali was covering about uh, the, the business driver, why they made the change or uh, shift to the new newer environment in AWS with Redshift, and also some of the project-related information, so starting with a 12-week project and what are the possible outcomes, what are the decisions that were made to actually uh, be part of this 12-week engagement, I'm going to cover the technical side of it, what exactly we did as part of this pilot, and what was the uh, what was the core framework. I'm going to talk about uh, uh, the core framework itself and how the, the project evolved. 
So uh, you heard Ali mentioning about the thousands of workloads. The, the complexity of uh, this environment is not on the, the sizing of data. It's, it's 20 terabytes, but the complexity is in the 5,000 plus or 6,000 plus uh, workloads. The workload uh, for Scholastic, uh, the definition is uh, any change that happens to an individual table is, is called a workload. So they, uh, they, they made it in such a way that uh, it's all well orchestrated. So may change this table and then after this, do this, do this, do this. So they, they heavily use an on-premises scheduler called Control-M, which orchestrates all these 5,000 plus uh, jobs that run every day uh, during the batch window. So the key here when you're designing uh, uh, in the newer environment is how do you define all these dependencies? How do you categorize these jobs into different job groups, which is basically a functional unit? And uh, how do you integrate with your scheduling that's already happening on premises? And while this has been happening in the hybrid environment, possibly for, for one, two years, how do you make the hybrid work uh, with all this orchestration and, uh, and the dependencies? Um, so, so defining jobs and job groups was critical. Everything has to be parameterized. Um, so we selected DynamoDB for, for that. Uh, it's, it's ideal for, uh, for schema-less type of environment. You, you provide all the information necessary uh, to process a specific uh, workload, uh, be it coming from uh, different types of sources, in this case AS400, and there were use cases where they were pulling from the FTP server. So different types of sources and different types of targets. So, so DynamoDB was a perfect solution. Um, in terms of uh, the scheduling, so that's another key component. Uh, again, we had to do a lot of whiteboarding and figuring out what exactly should we have one orchestration tool versus multiple. Um, they are using uh, control M heavily, so we don't want to change that because it has uh, many more thousands uh, uh, for their on-premises environment. Um, with respect to native AWS tools, Data Pipeline provided that orchestration uh, feature. Uh, we use that heavily. Um, and I'm going to talk about uh, during the, the transformation portion, we also had to build a lightweight uh, orchestration engine in, in Python. And uh, uh, so the combination of three, we were able to execute the overall pipeline right from extraction all the way to transformation. Uh, uh, again, uh, for... for uh, uh, Ali also mentioned about the, the key non-functional requirements. It's not just providing the self-service uh, capability to the business users. From the IT perspective, it has to satisfy all the non-functional requirements that they already have and they would like to achieve. So uh, having the security, governance, scalability, uh, audit capability, traceability, everything is critical as much as providing uh, the, the case for the business users. Um, so in the next section, I'm going to talk about the each individual phase. Uh, so you have the uh, extract phase and the loading phase and transformation phase. Um, how we did it at Scholastic, uh, maybe this is something that uh, that we learned together. You, we hear from uh, your talks and you hear from what we do. And uh, uh, So for, for the extract portion, um, again, if I have to see uh, between E extract, load, and transform, the transformation is, is the complex one. So extract and load are... Again, I wouldn't categorize too easy, but they're simpler compared to the transformations. So for the extraction, the challenge was uh, how do you extract the data in, uh, from AS400 and make it parallel? Um, so I have uh, got questions from the previous sessions on why do you even have EMR in the picture if you're just moving from AS400 to Redshift? It's, it's relational, it's relational. The, the reason we went with this architecture is, uh, uh, again, as Ali was mentioned, we used a tool called a Scoop, which is an open source tool, um, and uh, that can sit on top of EMR, it can make, uh, it can paralyze. Um, and uh, you can define the number of mappers or parallel process where it can extract and uh, save it somewhere. And Redshift is very efficient to load the data from S3. 
So it's not efficient to load the data directly from uh, AS400 to Redshift directly. So S3 is the staging area where you have to extract and put it there. And there are some best practices around how you stage the data in S3. It has to be split, uh, it has to be compressed, and uh, all these different uh, best practices so that you can load the data efficiently and faster. Uh, and uh, in terms of orchestration, after the on-premises uh, uh, jobs are scheduled and run. Uh, it kicks off, the control arm kicks off the data pipeline process, which reads uh, the metadata information of wh what uh, workloads need to be started, can they run in parallel, um, what are the things that need to happen. This is all orchestrated using the data pipeline. In terms of the load, uh, again, load is very easy uh, because you have uh, the data already staged in the format that's efficient for uh, uh, for loading into Redshift. All we have to do is the orchestration. So, so triggering a data pipeline activity, uh, which will uh, run the uh, commands on Redshift. Okay, you have this information in this location. Just go ahead and pull it. One of the things we added as part of the extraction process, which is used for the traceability, is we just not uh, we not only dump the entire data, we also add a couple of uh, columns like the batch ID information, what time it's day, uh, so that we have the ability to track uh, or trace all the way until the facts and dimensions at at what uh, at what time and what batch loaded this type of data and uh, how it's transformed. So we added those uh, those columns at the row level. So every time we pull the data, we add one or two columns and it goes all the way until the facts and dimensions. So the transformation portion. So this is this is the common question where a lot of uh, I think many of many of you are looking for answers for. How do I transform my uh, uh, my logic is embedded into the stored procedures? My logic is embedded in the cubes. I have all these places, and uh, there is not relevant direct match when you are migrating to Redshift. It doesn't support stored procedures. You don't have the cube technology. What, what do I do? Um, again, there is no easy answer. Uh, so you do have to extract the logic. Uh, from the stored procedures or joint conditions or uh, or uh, your cubes, you have to extract that and put it in a relevant place. And and the reason we picked ELT uh, is because uh, most of the transformation that Scholastic does, it's based on uh, the the incoming data and also the existing data. So it's it's more like absurd operations or uh, so the transformation in flight, which is typically the use case for ETL, is not applicable. Um, so we load the data into staging tables and we do the transformations uh, 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 using SQL queries to do that and, uh, and create the facts and dimensions. Uh, so, so the majority of, uh, again, the timeline of the project is dependent on how much transformations you need to do and for how many workloads, how many tables we are talking about. So this, out of all the different process, this defines your length of the project. And uh, in terms of the process, uh, we uh, th th there are a few things which data pipeline was not able to provide. So hopefully this gets addressed in the in the later versions of the data pipeline. A uh, couple of things it was not able to do is we uh, wanted to track how many rows got inserted, how many rows got updated, so that we we do the operational efficiency and optimization. It was not out of the box. So we built a lightweight uh, Python application, uh, which will uh, again gather as much information and then uh, run this transformation and uh, get the better data related to that. Uh, when you're making the transition from your existing systems, uh, again, any type of systems, uh, Pawan was mentioning that uh, commonly you have three types of use cases and uh, to migrate to Redshift. Irrespective of where you're coming from, uh, the single biggest optimization you can do uh, when you are uh, migrating to Redshift is, is around the schema design. You need to understand 
uh, what Redshift is good at. Um, uh, uh, don't don't go like to like. So if you're using Kimball uh, at Scholastic, they heavily use Kimball. Uh, they go by the book. Everything is perfect in the existing environment. Uh, but in, when you're making the transition, the common questions are, okay, it's been working. Why doesn't it work? Uh, because a similar database has environment. So understanding how the target system, in this case Redshift, works is definitely important and definitely do make changes so that it's optimized for, for Redshift. Uh, again, the concept of lift and shift will optimize later. It's, it's while you're making the transition, it's better to uh, put some effort upfront on the schema design uh, so that all your reports and uh, whatever you, the, the purpose you're migrating to Redshift is achieved by, by making this call. Uh, so some of the high level best practices, again, these things are, are covered much more in detail um, in the three, three, 300 level and 400 level courses. But at the very high level, uh, the, the, the changes that work for Scholastic is, uh, is around modifying some of the things around the star schema. Um, so we were able to uh, get away from uh, the unique identifiers and use, use natural keys. And uh, the other one is uh, we moved some of the common used columns in dimensions move it over to the facts. So in, whenever you're doing a joins, you don't want to join all the time. So if the column is already present in your fact, you just base your reporting on single single tables so it doesn't need to join. Um, again, distribution and sort keys, this is a very important. If you're coming from MPP world, you already are aware of uh, how those work. Uh, uh, it's basically how do you co-locate the data when you're doing the, uh, uh, the joins or else uh, how do you make the parallelization happen uh, if you're inserting lots of uh, rows. Uh, the other type of uh, optimizations you can consider is around the compression. Definitely do use compression. The auto, auto compression works great. Uh, there are some best practices around do it in dev, uh, make a static uh, uh, encoded table into uh, the higher instances. And uh, uh, one of the other questions we keep getting uh, uh, from the customers is uh, Redshift is, doesn't enforce primary keys uh, and foreign keys. Uh, I'm used to that environment. How do I make it happen? Again, uh, you have to use ETL uh, or, or the overall process to figure out how that's going to work, uh, but definitely do define the foreign keys and primary keys. It's used by the cost-based optimizer to make the decisions, to make it faster. Um, again, as is true with any enterprise customer, Scholastic has a very high bar on security and governance. Everything has to be secure in the overall pipeline, right from uh, the, uh, the extraction portion all the way going into Redshift. Um, so, so the common practices that we followed, and uh, again, which is typical for any enterprises, is uh, encryption at rest and encryption in transit. So we are using the persistent stores of S3 and Redshift. Uh, again, both allow those encryption transit and rest. Uh, Scoop allows the, the encrypted uh, extraction. Uh, and uh, the actual passwords for the source systems and target systems are encrypted using KMS. We use the customer-managed uh, KMS, and we use IAM rules heavily. Um, you have seen in the previous uh, uh, flow diagrams of uh, extraction, loading, and uh, this one. We use EC2 instances, transient EC2 instances, EMR clusters, um, and uh, we use Jenkins for deploying. Uh, we use control agents. So some of these components have EC2 instances. So we rely on the IAM uh, rules which has access to encrypt or decrypt using the customer managed keys and only have the, the least privileges that or the, that particular uh, uh, EC2 can, can do. Uh, so, so going back to what, uh, what purpose is this new environment supposed to solve? 
Um, it was supposed to solve the self-service problem that they're having in their existing environment. Uh, the business users um, should have the capability to do the self-service on the facts and dimensions. Not only we were able to achieve that, uh, but we were also able to enable uh, the other folks. And uh, we have the power users can go against the staging tables uh, where they have more visibility than they ever had before. We also have the, the incoming changes per day, every day, uh, stored in S3. So there is a new avenue that opened up for Scholastic where they can mine the data across what's happening in the sources so that they can make new decisions that they're not able to do before. Um, Again, the, we, uh, we were able to uh, uh, enable different layers, and uh, we use different technologies. They have been using Tableau uh, for, for the power users and the business analysts. Uh, for the actual data analysts, uh, again, things change rapidly in, uh, in AWS environment. So we didn't have QuickSight before. We didn't have the newer technologies before. We didn't have Athena before. So we tested with the EMR, Presto, Hive to, to enable that. And... Uh, uh, I want to make a quick mention. Uh, while we were going through this process, AWS, again, uh, Redshift and all the different uh, components, there's so many updates. It's, uh, you always, it's not the architecture that you started with. You always need to keep up the pace so that uh, you leverage all the newer uh, features that keep coming. One of the things I can, uh, uh, I can share is uh, when we were doing the initial project, the WLM queues, which is the workload management, it was not dynamic. We had to reboot uh, whenever we are starting the window if we have to use that feature. Um, again, while we are doing that, uh, the, that feature came in handy. Uh, so now we have a script that basically uh, dynamically changes the workload so that we allocate most of the resources to the, to the batch process and that the, the batch process runs efficiently. So, so keep looking out for all the updates and see if you can leverage in your environment. Uh, so, so once we have this core uh, uh, framework or the overall process data pipeline process defined, uh, this uh, gives a snapshot of what happens in each of the sprint. Uh, uh, Scholastic is, is very big on agile methodology for project implementation. Uh, so uh, once we define that during the 12-week project uh, and, and the later phases, so uh, they, they follow two-week sprints, yeah, this gives a snapshot of what exactly happens in the two-week sprint. Um, so uh, in the two weeks, depending on the velocity of the team, uh, the team identifies um, what are the things that we can achieve in these two weeks. Um, uh, can we get uh, four different uh, new staging tables? Can we add three more columns in your dimensions? Can you have a, create a new dimensional fact? So this is, uh, uh, this is defined at the beginning of the sprint, and uh, the actual work effort is basically once you identify what those tables are, uh, define them, uh, add entries into the DynamoDB table, and everything is parameterized. And uh, the, the, the biggest component here is the transformation portion, as I was explaining. For those four tables that were identified, what was the logic uh, used in, uh, in AS400, what was the logic used in uh, SQL Server, and convert that specific piece into the, the newer environment. Create the SQL script around that, and then stays that SQL script in, uh, in S3, and have the orchestration process run that S3 script as part of the transformation ELD process. Um, and we used the development test and deploy in the two-week sprints. Uh, so, so this was very effective and efficient um, as we went along through the process. Uh, so some of the key uh, technical lessons learned uh, is, uh, as I was mentioning, the, the core framework, which is the, the overall process. Uh, we, we, we envisioned it as something that's, that's almost static, that rarely changes uh, uh, for your overall project. Um, and the actual uh, project, uh, uh, project repository 
is something that happened for every sprint. So the, the four tables got changed and the SQL scripts, those are the only things that changed. The, the, the DynamoDB, uh, uh, SQL uh, Scoop, EMR, and all the automation around that, it doesn't change. That's the core framework. Uh, so uh, during the first couple of phases, we had everything as part of the same code repo. Uh, we were having some issues as we were not able to scale across teams. So we isolated the core framework with the actual project uh, 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 repository. And uh, as you can see in the, in the environment, you have different layers. Um, and as part of the non-functional requirements, we had to gather all the logging information, all the tracing information so that we can optimize our process. Some of the information is residing in, uh, in Redshift, some of the information is residing in Redshift, some of the information is residing in DynamoDB, some is in S3 log files. So there has to be a way of consolidating all that information so that you can, uh, you can run some reasonable uh, uh, reporting so that you can optimize your process. Um, and uh, uh, one of the things, again, uh, if you ask us, uh, what would you differently if you start right now? Um, so initially, because this was a pilot project, we made some assumptions, um, and we went. Uh, we wanted to do a quick delivery of uh, the actual MVP of the product that we were doing. Uh, we did not do the, the QR automation uh, in the beginning of the project. So again, as it got more successful, we were able to onboard new functional areas, uh, and uh, QR remained a backlog. So it took time for us to actually catch up with the automation of QA. Uh, again, if we were to do that differently, uh, I would start with uh, the QA automation, uh, the test-driven uh, development right from the beginning. Uh, so that's it. I will hand over to Ali uh, for, for continuation. Thanks. Thanks, Lakshmi. Um, okay, so uh, I want to take you back to uh, when we were talking about the initial 12-week uh, project and what happened after that. So, um, you know, that was uh, seen as a success, so that was good. Um, and, you know, when we started that, um, the management had asked us um, to come up with a, a timeline and a plan to migrate the whole enterprise um, to this platform. So we had estimated a 24-month um, period, which we thought was quite um, aggressive given that, you know, we're talking about the whole enterprise, we're talking about, um, you know, years and years of data uh, and, and complex logic, um, and uh, seven, you know, quite distinct lines of business. Um, of course, <laughs> that was not uh, good enough for them, and they asked us to collapse that to, to 12 months, uh, which is really aggressive. Um, so, you know, there are a few reasons for this. Um, the first is, um, you know, we had demonstrated in that 12 weeks some immediate uh, benefits to the line of business, right? They not only now had their data um, hours before uh, they, they uh, you know, previously did, where they were to meet and beat the SLAs very comfortably, um, but they were able to visualize and now get a, a level of insight that they weren't able to do so before. So there was a, an appetite for that. Um, also, of course, um, nobody wants to be running two platforms, or in our case, three platforms simultaneously for longer than necessary. So we really wanted to collapse the the um, uh, the time that these two uh, systems are running, you know, uh, uh, at the same time, right? So um, the, the final thing was, you know, and this is a good problem to have, a lot of the users were getting wind of, of this, and we had a lot of comments like, um, you know, why is LOB X on this and, and we're not? And that, that's a good, good position to be in, of course. So our immediate concern in collapsing this timeline was, well, you know, where are we going to find skilled staff, right? Where do you find people who know AS400 and SQL Server and, uh, you know, Amazon Redshift. So we worked closely with um, uh, our consulting partner, North Bay, and, you know, we co-designed a sort of a curriculum and a training program um, so that when uh, folks were coming on board, um, you know, they already had the, the skills, and that helped a lot. 
Um, so, you know, how do you actually, how do you scale up um, a project like this? How do you go from, you know, one work stream, one team um, working on one line of business to seven teams working on seven lines of businesses and all independently um, being able to execute uh, a migration like this, which is quite complex? So, uh, the first thing is, we had to develop, um, you know, a cost model for this, right? That's the first thing that you get asked by your management. How much is this going to cost? So we had a fairly decent handle on the AWS cost. We were able to extrapolate that for, you know, this line of business, which has this many entities and, and this amount of logic, roughly, um, you know, we need X type of environment in AWS. And, and of course, there were, you know, it wasn't an exact model, but it was a model. It allows us to kind of extrapolate. Uh, and we did a similar uh, process with the labor side as well. So we were able to say, okay, um, if you collapse the timeline by this much, that means you have to paralyze, paralyze these additional streams and the cost would be you know, X. Um, and of course, running in parallel now, having several teams at the same time, we needed help. So we reached out to agile coaches and they were really uh, instrumental in, in getting us to, to be able to scale our teams effectively. Um, there's also a technology side to this, right? And we needed to make sure that our core framework could stand up to, you know, uh, uh, the load that we put, we put on it. And it was designed from the outset for parallelism, but we needed to test that it would scale. So we tested it uh, with 10 times uh, the, the, the scale of, of data passing through it, and it, and it, and it, didn't, it didn't croak. And so that was encouraging. Um, we also needed to uh, increase our skills in engineering best practices. So we needed to make sure that people were using code repositories uh, consistently across these seven teams, and also we needed to build um, our continuous integration and continuous deployment frameworks. So where are we now? Um, so, you know, we are six months into this 12-month this uh, migration cycle, and uh, we have migrated four out of seven lines of business. Uh, the framework is, 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 the, is the secret sauce, right? It allows us to migrate data from our legacy systems into the Scholastic Data Cloud uh, much faster than would have been possible otherwise. Uh, you know, one example that I like to highlight is for one of our interna international um, divisions, um, they actually did not use the existing enterprise data um, warehouse. They uh, contracted to a third uh, party, a, a different company that they paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to every year to collect their data and manage it and, and, and provide reporting and so on. Uh, so within only 10 weeks, we were able to migrate them completely away from that vendor, which is AS400, into this classic data cloud and sever that relationship and, and save them about four or five hundred thousand dollars. So that's very significant. Um, in terms of cost, we now have a very fine handle on the amount that we're spending for our operations. Um, we know, for instance, that the framework that, that Lakshmi described in some detail um, costs us, minus the cost of persisting the data itself, about $40 a day to run, right? So we, we can get that granular, and we think we can even, uh, you know, uh, collapse that down by moving to more serverless approaches. Um, we also managed to launch, uh, while we're doing this migration, our first big data initiative. Uh, we have a product um, that is a subscription-based service that's in the schools. So the, um, the school subscribes, and all the children who are in that class have access to a library of books that they can read on their e-reader now. And so we have a you know, tremendous amount of data now that we didn't have previously. So we see what the children are reading. It's really kind of fascinating, actually, um, to see you know, how, they, uh, you know, how they read, how they interact with this product. And so we get you know, millions of events that come in every day. Um, uh, an event is you know, the child uh, turned a page, highlighted uh, a word, or, or so on. Uh, these come in in, in semi-structured JSON format, and we're able to process 
process those as well. Um, so, you know, one of our lines of business that has moved over now to this classic data cloud, uh, we're processing uh, millions of rows a day, and we actually have to reprocess about 1.5 billion rows daily to get a, a, a fresh uh, view. And, you know, that, that we're able to do, you know, um, without breaking a sweat. In terms of our, you know, ETL, now ELT cycle, we've managed to improve the performance by over 170%, which is very significant, and we still think there's a lot of room for improvement there as well. So, um, you know, key lessons that I would share with you if you're thinking about migrating, things to think about, um, you know, have an absolute clear view of, of the costs in, in your environment, right? Um, monitor them closely and think about, you know, moving to serverless approaches wherever possible. So one of the things that we're doing now that we didn't do previously is, you know, spinning up EC2s um, when we need them and, and, you know, popping them out of existence when, when their work is done. Um, the second sort of key takeaway is, you know, it, this is not if you build it, they will come, right? Going back to our original um, uh, goal of, you know, having self-service um, reporting, um, it's really key to engage the business, right? Um, you know, you tell them, okay, we're on Amazon now. So they say, oh, great. So can you write me a report? Well, no, <laughs> right? Um, so it's really key to have that relationship with the business. And the way that we did that was... Um, you know, identifying in every line of business a person that we call a data champion. So the data champion is someone who's an expert um, in data, not a technology person, but then we partnered them with a technology person on our side, a data guide, and these two people together in every line of business really, uh, you know, uh, work together to define how adoption should work. Um, agile coaches are, are really key if you're going to do a project like this uh, with multiple teams at the same time, and that was, that was very important for us as is choosing you know, the right partners, uh, people who have experience in doing that. So we we're very lucky on that account as well with both AWS uh, Consulting and North Bay. And finally, you know, the, the, the most important lesson is um, nobody wants to be running multiple systems at the same time, right? Um, standing up a, a new environment, um, especially with uh, technology like AWS, is, is, is easy, right? Um, even migrating your data, uh, that's not a very complicated problem. That's a solvable problem. But decommissioning an existing system is extremely, it's extraordinarily hard, right? We knew it was hard, and it was still harder than we thought it would be. Um, having said that, we are uh, on track to uh, migrate the rest of our enterprise within the next six months to the Scholastic Data Cloud. So with that, um, I'd like to close. Uh, my co-presenters and I are available for uh, questions. And please do uh, you know, fill out the, uh, the session evaluation. We really appreciate your feedback. And thanks very much.